This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Okay, picture this. A young boy in suburban New Jersey. Okay, don't tune out once I say New Jersey. I live there. <laughs> I know it's sort of the punchline for a lot of things. Like my previous place I lived, Cleveland. Okay, New Jersey sitting at an old computer and learning to computer program for the very first time. And then fast forward, okay, 30 years later, and that same person is about to do what a tiny speck of the global population ever achieves – Take a company he founded public on the NASDAQ. And when you guys, when I say a tiny speck, look, I want to put this in perspective. If there are 7.9 billion people on planet Earth and counting, there are just 3,097 companies that list on the tech-heavy exchange. Okay, that's what I mean by speck. My guest today did it. He's George Kurtz of CrowdStrike. Yes, yes, that CrowdStrike, the cybersecurity firm that identified it was Russian intelligence-affiliated hackers who would worm their way into the computer systems of the Democratic National Committee during the 2016 election. But I, I'm way ahead of myself here. George's story starts decades before all of that excitement and drama, and it begins with a fourth grader who learned how to do the very thing that would lead him to the mountain atop which he stands today. I want to welcome George Kurtz, CEO and founder of CrowdStrike. Great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, and I'm excited for today. I'm, I'm glad because, you know, we're more focused these days on both the news and the process by which people really achieve success. And uh, it's not easy. And that that's the story we want to hear. Not the easy and the, the perfect parts. We want to hear about the, the tough parts. But let's let's go to growing up. Raised in Parsippany, for those of you who don't know, great town in New Jersey, but by your mom. Tell us about your childhood. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Parsippany, New Jersey, which was uh, like a suburb. It was probably farmland, I guess, when I got there. And uh, my dad passed away when I was pretty young at seven. So raised by my mom and we didn't really have a um, bunch of money or anything, so it was all about uh, figuring out, you know, how to how to get stuff done for yourself. And um, I took a liking to computers uh, early on and started programming and um, you know working various jobs. I we can talk about that in a minute, but uh, mm-hmm. I've done all kinds of stuff. But that's you know it was a really modest childhood, and I th- think that uh, set the stage for you know some of the things that I wanted to do. Um, you know, in my life, because if you don't, if you don't have a lot, you're focused on, well, how do you, how do you get success? And you got to put your head down and just, you know, go after it. And that's what I've been trying to do. You know, my, my dad, who grew up really, really poor and became very successful, used to say, as he raised us in Beverly Hills, um, and my listeners have heard this before, but it's worth repeating. He'd say, I gave you kids every advantage except disadvantage. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. in a way, 
that is such a driver. And what we found with so many of our guests on Everyone Talks to Liz, how, how did that drive you? If you could just articulate that. Well, I, you know, if you look at or you talk to a lot of successful people, which you have, mm-hmm. um, and I have as well, there's, there's always seems to be some level of trauma, not in every case, but a lot of cases. And I think that, that trauma, whatever it might be, it could be you know, someone passing away, not having a lot of money. I mean, you know, you go down a list of things that impact you as a, as a kid. And I think those are the things that tend to drive you when you, you know, when you don't have a lot of money, um, when you, I mean, I almost didn't finish school because I didn't have enough money to, to fit. I had a scholarship that um, kind of got changed a little bit my senior year. And, and really, I just, I don't know how we sorted it all out, but um, we finally got enough money pull together to, to actually finish school. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have those sort of things happen, um, it's like, it's like burning the bridge behind you. There's, there's, there's no, there's no way to go back. There's no safety net. So you have to make it all work. And I think that, that kind of sets you up for success because you're, you know, you're not waiting for everything just to be handed to you. You have to go out uh, and you have to grind and you have to go, go make it happen. And, um, you know, I think that's that's how I got to where I'm at today. Well, in a way, you you kind of paired that feeling along with a really hot interest in all things computers. I mean, in high school, I know you started coding at fourth grade, but tell us about what you built in high school, a, a bulletin board system. First of all, were you asked to do this? How did this come about? Because I find this story particularly fascinating as it pertains to the bigger picture of your life. Well, as you mentioned, I started uh, programming uh, games in uh, in fourth grade. And it was on a Commodore, uh, really one of the <laughs> early ones, green screen. Uh, it was even before the Commodore, you know, 64 and those sort of things. But in any event, when I got into high school, I really liked um modems uh which at the time i'm dating myself it was like 300 baud modems which is really slow if you remember those days oh yes and the, and and the dial up the whole thing sure the dial, yeah the dial up and the whole thing so i had um i had basically uh set one up and then modified it it's, it's sort of like you get the program and then you can modify it. so I, I built a whole bunch of other things around it and and uh, i used to just run it from my basement and uh it was a lot of fun and got to learn how to program more things. One of the interesting things um, that I did is the, the modem I had at the time actually couldn't auto answer. So it's kind of hard to have a bulletin board system that doesn't actually answer when somebody calls you. So I had, <laughs> I had, I took the phone system in, in my basement apart and then I, I wired a bunch of like capacitors and solenoids together and then reprogrammed oh. the joystick port so that uh, the computer would actually just listen, you know, for a signal on the joystick port and then answer when the phone rang. So that that's how, because I didn't have enough money for the for a really good modem. Um, so that's how I made it work. Wait, so were you like, stuff. hold on, were you like those two, I'm not talking about the Matthew Broderick character in War Games, who was a computer geek anyway, but the two guys that he would go to at some business and they would yell at each other and talk about uh, backdoors and things like that. I mean, that sounds like you were heavy into the weeds of this business. 
You know, I, th- I think that's that level of curiosity really got me started into uh, into computer security because you do have to be curious. You have to understand how it all works and you want to understand how everything works. And I would spend a lot of time just understanding the, the computers mm-hmm. and how they work and the, the chips and how to program them. Um, and by no means, I wasn't a great programmer, but I got by. And I think that set me on my on my course for getting into computer security really early on in my career. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, it's been something I've been excited about for a long time. Which is exactly where you were able to crystallize that type of computer security position at PricewaterhouseCoopers, because you got a, a job in accounting, right? And And then how did you go from actual numbers crunching to the technology piece of this? while you were at PwC? It's a, it's a good question. So I didn't want to be a mainframe programmer when I went to college. And at the time, unless you're really specialized, MIT or something along those lines, you were kind of a mainframe programmer. And uh, so I got a business degree because I always wanted to have my own business. And I figured, well, accounting, if you know accounting, that's a fundamental building blocks of finance and just business. So let me get that. I got a... Uh, uh, an internship in the Price Warehouse and a full-time job there as well. And uh, and then I needed a couple of years to get my CPA uh, license, which I, I passed the test. And then I was essentially just, you know, doing my, my time there. And it was, um, again, probably dating myself. It was 16 column paper and 10 key and, and, you know, like one really old computer. And you really had to write down all the numbers that you would just take out of this trial balance. So you literally <clears throat> take something that came out of the mainframe, you'd print it, and then you'd copy all the numbers down and oh. you'd add it up on a key calculator. And it took like hundreds of hours. And I said, this is like really not efficient. I'm all about efficiency. <laughs> so somehow I can't believe I, in today's day and age, I would never be able to do it. I talked someone at the client site, which was a fortune, uh, probably fortune 100 customer into giving me access to the mainframe. And then I wrote a bunch of programs that pulled all the numbers out and created all these like lead schedules that you needed. Right. So I was, yeah, I was either going to get fired or promoted because I cut the billable <laughs> hours in half um, by doing all this stuff. So they took notice of that. And then they drafted me into, uh, into the P- price Waterhouse. It was actually before the C it was just price Waterhouse. Uh, into their management consulting group, and that's how I became the the fifth person in the security group for all the Price Waterhouse. And and that's it. Feels like where you you really found your passion because from that stepping stone, you founded a company called Foundstone. How about that play on words, which was security consulting? But how did that idea come about? It does take courage to leap from a corporate job, does it not? To starting your own company. It, it, it does. So I went from Pricewaterhouse to EY. I was at EY for like two years, I think. And yep. then um, I thought, you know, there was some technology that needed to be built. And I thought there could be a, a way to do that. So I had gotten married and uh, I spent about six months writing a book that became pretty famous and uh, didn't have many days off. And you then have I had to, to give the title. Wife. Our viewers and our listeners want to know. Uh, it's a book called Hacking Exposed. And, <laughs> it's huge. Uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole story on that one. But so I had to essentially write this book and I got married. And then I had to tell my wife that I was going to start a company and, and not take a paycheck for about six months after making you know decent money at at, uh, at EY. And, uh, you know, she went along with it and 
And, you know, she was supportive and, and the rest is history. And then, and then we had to move from New Jersey out to California. When oh, I started that's that not company. the worst thing in the world. That's where I'm from. So you're, <laughs> to me, that's, that's the holy grail. Uh, so, George, I don't want you to gloss over not taking a paycheck for six months. Because during that time, I can only imagine as you were founding the company, you ran into some stumbles and some pretty tough falls. I mean, isn't that what being a founder is all about when it comes to starting companies? I mean, our our listeners really need to hear that it's not easy. What were some of the difficult parts of that first startup? Well, the interesting part was probably our first client, which was actually Microsoft. And oh, uh, there was a guy. Oh, my. You did not have it hard. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, so we, we had a we had a deal with them that was was fixed fee, including all the expenses. So we um, we went out to one of the guy's house who was a is a bachelor at the time in like Kirkland area. And each there were six guys who started this company and each guy got their own room. I, I actually happened to sleep on a mattress in the dining room. <laughs> And the light was right over my head. So it always kept me up um, because we had all the expenses and, and the fees were all in one. It wasn't like fees plus expenses. So we, we spent six months making all that work with them and, and then, you know, started thinking about it was a technology company and services. Um, but we really helped redefine the vulnerability management market. Um, and, and we did that at Foundstone. But yeah, it was didn't get paid, slept on a mattress. Uh, for a few months while we were up there doing that work, you know, on and off going back from New Jersey. But uh, it was uh, pretty interesting. You know, you just had to make it work and realize that today's day and age money it just almost grows on trees in the venture world. And it wasn't quite that way sure. in 1999 when I started the company. So you had to be super frugal about what you were doing. And uh, I think that taught me a lot. You know, when you get venture money, it's, it's not your money. You got to make it go a long way. And, oh, and, and, really and they're hovering and they're they're giving you all kinds of consulting ideas and, and they're trying to almost package you in a way. I know that whole game now and it has really, really changed what it means to be a Netflix, for example, and start up where you're sitting on orange crates in a, in a tiny office in Santa Cruz. I mean, to me, oh. I, I love these stories because they really show that it was quite difficult. You probably didn't have a lot of mentors, but you, you were able to sell that company, correct? And then starting CrowdStrike. What did you want CrowdStrike to actually be? Uh, well, I wanted it to be the sales force of security. Okay. And I sold uh, Foundstone to McAfee in 2004. I wasn't looking to sell it, but they, they wanted to buy it. So we had some venture folks that were looking for a return and um, you know, didn't necessarily have the stomach to keep going. So mm -hmm. sold the company. I spent seven years there. I didn't think I'd make seven years, but uh, it, you know, it all worked out. And um, I saw a bunch of challenges in the, in the, in the industry. And, and the two big ones were that people were spending a lot of money on security and still be breached. So they weren't getting the outcome I thought they should get, which was not be breached. And the entire industry was focused on identification of malware as opposed to preventing breaches. So I want to do something different. And two, this gets back to my Salesforce of security comment. Everything to me looked like Siebel, and I thought it should look more like Salesforce. So the cloud, I thought, was the future. Um, having this you know, big brain in the cloud that had the computational power to actually identify these threats and leveraging AI and a lot of the things that we do today with data is, uh, is not – we really haven't deviated from the vision I had when I started the company. 
but it was pretty revolutionary back in 2011 to do what we're doing with, from a security perspective and do it in the cloud. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. We had you on well before 2016. We were very interested in the CrowdStrike story, but 2016 was this very pivotal moment. And I want you to just kind of set that up because... Everybody remembers the election campaign and and how dramatic it was, Trump and Hillary and all that was going on and the the Russia investigations and the Russia – well, before the investigation. But all these these worries and then suddenly the hacking of the Democratic National Committee computer system. Talk about how you guys ended up looking into that and how you discovered what you did discover. When it started, it was just routine. Uh, we work with law firms all the time. They get calls from their customers that say, hey, we've got a problem, and the law firm engages us. This happens every day with all these breaches. All the time. And Yeah, all the time. And we got engaged, and uh, we do what we do. We showed up and uh, used our tools forensically to examine what happened. There was a whole bunch of machines, and we figured out what was happening. And we spent a lot of time at CrowdStrike building um, – I call them the fingerprints of um, these nation state actors. Uh, we track over 150 different actor groups, adversary groups, and uh, we kind of catalog all this stuff electronically. And we were able to say, you know, as we went through it, look, look like it was Russia. You know, it looked like their fingerprints, uh, if you will, electronic fingerprints. And we wrote the report and, and uh, you know, we didn't think much of it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> fast forward, you know, and you've got two world leaders talking about us and, and everything that, uh, happened between 2016 and 2020. And it was just, just kind of crazy. So, you know, from our perspective, we, we showed up, we did our job, we wrote the report. Um, obviously the intelligence agencies also corroborated what we did and, you know, we moved on. Uh, I think it's interesting. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll be part of history of, uh, what happened there and, you know, and I look at it and say we did exactly what we're engaged to do. And we wrote a report and all the political stuff that happened after that is that's out of my control. But uh, we did our job and 
Um, I think that's that's what's important. Yeah, you exposed that it was Russian actors. The actors, I use that as a as a cybersecurity term. Bad actors uh, who had intelligence relations with the government, and obviously Donald Trump hated that. And but it was it was you guys were very much in the crosshairs at that time. I remember it, and you hadn't even gone public yet. You went public in 2019. I am mm-hmm. dying to know about. The, the months leading up to that and whether you were concerned that anything might be derailed because of this. I mean, how did both of those waves of news and headlines affect you and the company? Well, I think we just continue to do what we we're doing, which was posting great numbers and building great technology and keeping customers happy. And after that, I can't control it. Um, you know, obviously, uh, uh, you know, there's lots of news the events and we just happened to be a you know one company that was uh part of um you know narrative and uh, again from our perspective we did our job wrote the report and, and moved on and you know so it really wasn't that big of a deal to us we we knew the company um crowdstrike was was doing the right thing building great technology we our numbers speak for themselves you know that we put s1 so we weren't really that worried about it and um you know a lot of the noise that's out there is uh you know, there's a lot of trolls and those sort of things, and we just did our job and, and move forward. So uh, to us, it, was, it wasn't it was really that big of a deal. Going public is a big deal, though, right? I mean, that Going moment. public is a big deal. Tell yeah. me about that. Well, that was one of the areas that, uh, getting back to what I was talking about earlier, about having investors that, that saw the vision, and I didn't necessarily have that at Foundstone. So I handpicked uh, the investors that we had today. Um, Excel was a big part of it, and they were big part of, uh, you know, basically with me saying, hey, we, we we can build a sales force of security. We know we can have a public company. And we never wavered from that. Mm-hmm. I never got caught up in trying to sell the company. You had lots of people wanted to buy it, but I didn't really want to sell it. And uh, I thought we could, um, you know, have a company that is is really foundational in security. And when we went public, we were the largest uh, security IPO. And we uh, you know, we broke lots of records. I think we're the fastest growing uh, uh, software company, including SaaS at scale when we IPO'd. And there's a lot of names that you can go through that we actually were faster growing. We're third fastest to hit a billion dollars of annual recurring revenue behind uh, Zoom and Salesforce. So, you know, when we went uh, on the public markets, a lot of work to get there, as you might imagine. A uh, really proud day for me and for all the folks oh, at yeah. CrowdStrike and um you know, we two years, just uh, last week, we were able to open the bell again. We made the NASDAQ 100. Um, actually, I think they're fastest to make that. Um, and I'm, you know, a lot of people say, well, it, you know, public company, it's, it can be a pain and those sort of thing. I, I enjoy it. I mean, I enjoy the transparency and I enjoy what we're doing and I'm having fun. I think about the night after you go public, you, the collective you, anybody, you know, leading up to it, you've got the roadshow and then you've, well, I guess, depends, things may have changed, but you've got the roadshow, you've got the pricing moment, you've got uh, the the bell ringing and, and all of that. And you see how the stock responds and how a stock responds on the first day of trade does not predict how it will do years from then. But um, it's it's the night after I always wonder about when you finally lay your head on the pillow and you're sitting there trying to go to sleep after all that's happened. What was what was some of the things that went through your mind? 
Well, the, the after the IPO is an interesting story because during the roadshow, as you said, which was, uh, I actually had a lot of fun. I mean, it's meeting after meeting, city after city, but I had a lot of fun. And I'll tell you a story, which we'll get to your answer here in a minute, but we met with an investor and went through a whole pitch and he said, okay, it sounds interesting. He goes, but what are you going to do after the IPO? You know, we had a CEO that came in and he took the money and he went to Vegas and he partied and, you know, he had this, this whole thing that he went through. And I said, uh, yeah, that won't be us. I said, we're going to have a nice dinner <laughs> the night of the IPO. And then uh, next week, I think this was a Thursday, on Monday, we're, we're, we're doing a 100 by 100. And he just looked at me and, and it kind of cocked his head a little bit. So what's a 100 by 100? And I said, I'm going to keep the roadshow going. I'm going to meet 100 customers in 100 days. And I said, the the roadshow is just the green flag. It's not mm. the checkered flag. Mm. And blew the guy's mind. He's like, I have never heard that before. So the, the night, you know, basically the night of, we had a nice dinner. Uh, we relaxed a little bit on Friday. And Monday, we were back at it. And uh, I think I saw 130-some customers in 100 days. Um, built a tremendous pipeline and, you know, kept the investors happy. So that that was really my job. As we As we finish up here, I'm really eager to know one thing, and that is that now you are a billionaire and you grew up very modestly. You have children now. How do you raise them to have that same drive and that same hunger that you had, considering the the backdrop of what they have now today? I think that this is a challenge for anybody who's self-made. It's it's really... uh... It's really a good point. Um, and, you know, for me, it's, it's all about just trying to instill a work ethic, um, focus on doing the right things, treating people the right way. And uh, my son uh, got a job, you know, he's a busboy, works in a hotel. And, uh, you know, it's all about really starting from the bottom and, understanding how to deal with people and hustling and, you know, um, not everything's going to go your way and not every boss you're going to like. Uh, and you know, he's, he's got to earn his own money. And, uh, it's, it's much different when you have to go earn your, earn your own money. And it's kind of funny too, because the first paycheck that the kids look at, they're like, well, wait a minute, you know, I should have made a hundred bucks and I made like you know 40. And I said, well, you know, Welcome to America. There's a lot. There's a lot that goes out in taxes, so you got to You have to expose them to these real yes. world scenarios and just try to keep them grounded. And that, that's really what I try to focus on. Yeah, I remember my first job um, outside of college afterward, where it was at uh, my local station, and I said, "Dad, I'm going to be making this much," and he said, "Yeah, cut it in half because yeah. half of it is going to taxes." But he said, "That's the price you pay for living in this great." country that allows you to rise up and soar and succeed if you work hard enough, right? Well, and, that, and that's absolutely right. I mean, you, you, you think about what other country could you do this, you know, um, start from nothing and, you know, start a couple of businesses and be successful. I mean, it's only in America. So yeah. it, uh, it is the best country in the world. And, uh, you know, those are just things that we got to live with, uh, I mean, I kind of joke with 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 you know young people when they first understand what what happens with taxes, but um, <laughs> that is the price you pay, and uh, you know it's the best country in the world, and uh, it's only in America. 
Amen. And, uh, you know, you can, you can succeed like this. So I'm really fortunate. Well, and one of the things you have done with your success as we, as we truly wrap up here is you've bought some race cars. You are a car collector and you race. When was the last time you raced? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I race all the time. So it's, uh, we've got a big race coming up in Indy, uh, in a couple of weeks and, it's been it's been fun it's also something that we're we're well known for at CrowdStrike. um you know both in the u.s and internationally we sponsor formula one team at mercedes nice and uh you know we've, we've really wrapped that passion for business and generated a lot of uh a lot of new sales from it just getting people together and exposing to what CrowdStrike does and um it's it's been a great part of the, the company culture but it, it, the climb is always challenging isn't it that's the message that our our listeners we try and leave them with is that it's not easy, but boy, is it worth it, right? That's right. There's no shortcut to success, and it's there's no straight line, and you know all of the cliches that you've heard about in the past, and and they're all true. And uh, you know, it's it's one of those where people they'll see a lot of success, but you know, always see what's behind it, and uh, it, it's kind of like Facebook life, right? People only see Facebook life; they see the outside, not not, not the inside. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of hard work and a lot of trials and tribulations, a lot of disappointments. Um, but if you, if you stick to it and you bet on yourself, you know, you can have a great outcome. And um, I think that's, that's really the lesson learned here. George, it's great to hear your story. Thank you so much for sharing it with Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you so much, Liz. Always a pleasure. All right. Now go, go get those bad actor hackers out there. I hate those that's guys. The goal. That's the goal. Okay. Thank you so much. And and there is one thing I love. I love all of you listeners and the fact that you want to better yourselves by hearing these amazing stories. Thank you so much for tuning in. And of course, I'll see you Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business's Claim and Countdown. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.